The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And uh, with those words from Gramsci, I welcome you once again to the Time of Monsters podcast. Over the um, the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've touched on the sort of ongoing Clarence Thomas scandal a few times, and the scandal continues to get worse. And uh, I'm going to be talking about that in a second with um, Alexander Salmon, uh, who's a political writer for Slate. Um, but I think the one thing I'd want to sort of start off by mentioning um, is some of uh, Thomas's kind of thinking in all this, uh, which is um, Thomas, uh, I mean, like, he, he has said, well, you know, like this was uh, his relationship with Harlan Crow, the, um, the wealthy benefactor, you know, who really, I think can almost uh, be fairly described as his sugar daddy uh, is, you know, like just one of friends uh, and therefore private and nobody's business. Um, but I think there's like an ideological dimension that I want to open up with, um, which is like Thomas's very strong belief in um, a very uh, familiar type of American um, upward mobility, you know, like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you rise. And I think that uh, one aspect of this, you know, um, ideology that doesn't get less, enough attention is the relationship between um, the patron and the hardworking, uh, upwardly mobile poor. Uh, this is, you know, one sees this in the sort of classic 19th century novels of Horatio Alger's, um, uh, you know, like there's the uh, raggedy uh, uh, poor orphan uh, who works hard. And then at some point he's noticed by a rich man who then takes him under his wings and uh, nurtures him. And eventually, you know, he kind of marries the rich man's uh, daughter. Uh, and uh, this is the, uh, I, I really think that this sort of, um, uh, story. I mean, this is something deep in Thomas's um, way of thinking that uh, um, he comes from a very poor family, but one that was able to make something of itself, even in, you know, the horrors of uh, the Jim Crow South. Um, and so he, he um, this is something I think that is gets at maybe um, close to the heart of his thinking. But um, um, uh, and coupled with that is a sense that He's not getting what he's deserved. There's a um, interesting article in 2001 in the New York Post um, where he gave a kind of heartfelt speech thanking um, uh, someone who had um, helped him in some litigation. And in the New York Post article, Thomas says at one point uh, about his job as a Supreme Court justice, the job is not worth doing for what they pay. Uh, and I think that that, which is, I mean, to be fair, I think he might be right in the sense that, you know, anyone who's on the Supreme Court could be making much more money doing something else. But I think uh, usually in a sort of self-governing republic is understood, you know, there's a certain amount of sacrifice that's made for public service. Uh, but um, uh, I mean, I think in some ways, Thomas sort of feels like, well, he's kind of getting what he deserves. But but but, but that's just, I just want to open with that kind of speculation. But um, uh, Alex, uh, do, do you want to like maybe update uh, listeners as to uh, what we've just learned in uh, the last few days? Yeah, the sort of cascade of scandals is, is amazing. It's like hard to even keep up with. And by the time this runs or maybe new details, but we know <laughs> obviously that uh, that he, you know, that he's been taking that Clarence Thomas has been taking private jet flights that were paid for by Harlan Crow. We know that Harlan Crow uh, purchased his mother's house and let her lets her live there rent free. We know now that uh, 
He, Thomas's adoptive son was enrolled in a very expensive private school and Harlan Crow generously paid the tuition. Uh, none of this was disclosed, despite the fact that, that in this most recent scandal regarding the tuition, uh, Thomas did disclose a different gift uh, of $1,500 for tuition. So he does know at some level that that's the sort of thing that would be required to be disclosed. But the $6,200 a month he was getting uh, for uh, from Crow for this particular uh, enrollment uh, didn't make the disclosure list. So uh, I think those are the, the those are the big ones. Uh, but I, I think there's also been details that have come out about how clearly uh, Harlan Crow's interests were represented on this court. Uh, his his having benefited from the Supreme Court overturning the eviction moratorium, which Crow was you know personally against, and his 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 business uh, would have been hurt by the extension of. Um, the details are are astonishing, and even saying them out loud now, it's like hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are they are kind of hard to believe, and so 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 we. I mean, I mean, what we learned even a few weeks ago was kind of listening. It seems like it's getting worse, and uh, it seems like the good folks at the ProPublica, uh, which is a nonprofit journalist outfit that's uh, uncovered all this, uh, they continue to do work. I, I I believe they tweeted several times. You know, this is an ongoing story, so one could easily imagine uh, uh, more information coming out, uh, and. And not just about Thomas. Uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, um, another justice, also had a kind of uh, very troubling, you know, financial relationship where he had a, a co-owned a property that wasn't selling for a long time, and then suddenly he was elevated to the courts, and it suddenly sold to, um, you know, someone from a uh, a law firm uh, that has often does business before the courts, as they say. Uh, so, so, so it seems like there's a lot going on in the courts um that uh should be looked at and um for, and i think this gets at maybe the more towards the real meat of the scandal it's not just like you know um uh, what these justices are doing um you know requires investigation and perhaps punishment uh but also the failure of the system to do so um and uh, I want to start off with uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, who's a sen Democratic senator, uh, and as he has been generally like one of the more forceful voices on these issues. But he tweeted something which I thought was very um, telling. Um, he's uh, about the latest Thomas scandal. He said, uh, "When does the stench get bad enough for the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court stops the cover up and ends the mischief? This is on the Chief Justice to solve." Plain and simple. Moms rent family tuition, vacations, and gifts, and secret. Any other government employee would be fired. So, um, I mean, on one hand, very strong statement. I, I think it's right that, like, anyone else in the federal government who was, like, secretly receiving the kind of gifts that uh, Thomas uh, was and didn't disclose them, uh, you know, they would be in big trouble. Um, but I want to, you know, I to me, like, what stands out there is this is on the Chief Justice uh, you know, John Roberts, to solve plain and simple. Uh, do we agree with that? Is this on uh, simply on the chief justice to solve? Right. I mean, it's 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 such a ridiculous suggestion. I think you're right to point out, too, that what's so crazy about this scandal is that sort of the, the breadth of the gift receiving, the, the incredible uh, array of 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 gifts and donations and all this stuff that uh, that Clarence Thomas has taken, but then you also have the the very direct one-two sort of punch where you see Harlan Crow's own interests represented, and it's the same thing with the Neil Neil Gorsuch case where it's like, okay, this firm that is constantly in front of him 
uh, buys this house. It's like their interest. It's not something where there's this sort of soft conspiratorial thing where you're like, oh, he's getting these gifts. And like, maybe they'll, you know, the interest will be in the back of his mind when something comes up down the line. It's like, no, they're, they're it's very direct. It's like they get the thing and then they get the payoff right away. Um, yeah, the idea that, I mean, the other thing we should add too is that like Sam Alito is also in the pages of the Wall Street Journal having his own freak out. I mean, his, his is different in that it's not a sort of gift uh, taking scandal, but it's also him saying uh, stuff that is just totally improper for the court, for a Supreme Court justice to be saying about how he knows who uh, leaked the Dobbs decision and how, uh, you know, like public opinion is, is it, there's a campaign against the court and everyone's against him. And there's this conspiracy to undermine his, his personal authority and reputation and also the courts. I mean, the whole thing is totally out of control. The idea that John Roberts is Right is going a going to do this is b could be even trusted to do this is preposterous to, to rein all this in. It's like the, there are so many leaks in this ship at this point, uh, and one of them is literally obviously the literal leak of the Dobbs decision is just one thing that kind of started this whole saga. But right, the idea that that Roberts is like first of all that he is not implicated in, in the reality of the court as it currently stands. Of course he is, and like the fact that he did his great investigation to see who leaked the 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 decision and couldn't come up with anything it's like of course they roberts can't be trusted to do this uh it's a it's a ridiculous suggestion and white house is a pretty good senator it, it really does speak to a certain uh, yeah. uh just like a fundamental block in the way you think about these or the way democrats are thinking about these things well yeah no exactly i mean i think that he um i mean i, I should say like you know uh sheldon whitehouse uh, like you know like of all the democrats senators at least who are, um, you know, deal with these issues. He's actually been the most forceful. That's why I, I thought his third statement um, was kind of uh, stood out that uh, he, um, you know, this is the, the best that they got. And uh, the, uh, but right. even beyond that, I mean, like, it's a weird um, sort of anomaly in the system because uh, normally um, in the constitution, like, you know, you don't have each branch of the government self-regulating. Uh, in fact, the uh, you know the the onus and the burden uh, for when judges, uh, most federal judges misbehave, uh, actually falls to the um, uh, Congress and the Senate, especially the Senate. That uh, you know Congress has the the House of Representatives has the um, the duty um, and the right. To impeach, and the Senate, uh, with a you know two thirds majority, has the uh, ability to remove judges. It's very rarely done. I mean, that's a very high hurdle, um, uh, a very high um, hurdle to jump over. Uh, but it has happened in the past. You know, there have been cases, and there've also been cases of judges, um, uh, even at the level of the Supreme Court, who after you know a corruption case were um, corruption allegations much less serious than what we're hearing now were like made to resign um uh famously Abe Fortas in the 1960s uh and so in all those cases it's not like uh uh well one would say well the judiciary has total self-control and it's up to the judges to police themselves that, that's not actually what the constitution says and that's not how the system works and logically speaking you know even if it weren't uh, clear in the constitution um just like logically like where do we expect like you know institutions to police themselves like um so so you know congress has um and this particularly the senate part of the uh, you know has in theory 
the power to investigate uh and to set like rules for ethics um uh and then to set punishments um and uh uh the punishment you know could be much lighter than it deserves i mean impeachment is a kind of punishment that you could get with a majority in the house uh but in, in any case um yeah so this so, is so, all what what do we think about like you know uh I, I, do you think the Democrats, um, uh, especially I think Dick Durbin of Illinois, the senator um, senator who's uh, sort of running the um, House uh, Judiciary Committee, like do you think do you think that like any of the sort of steps I've outlined are things that Dick Durbin uh, might end up doing? That the things that are in his power, like uh, what are the chances that he could push for that? Yeah, I think that the question of what Durbin will do is really, really interesting. The way the statements he he's made, we had run through them. Yeah, I think Durbin has had a very bad two months. I would say, uh, just just from the get go. Uh, the the one thing that really strikes me in, in what you're saying to you, which I think is so smart, is that right. Of course, it's preposterous to say this one branch of government is going to be the most powerful, and also it's going to self regulate. It makes no sense. And like when we talk about, like I think when we talk about people like Durbin, sometimes people like Biden. Uh, and even maybe someone like White House, when we talk about these Democrats who don't want to do the enforcement that needs to be done, we often say like, oh, they're institutionalists, they're sort of like institutionally conservative, whatever. But I would say that that's the opposite of being an institutionalist. Like if you're an institutionalist, you should believe in the co-equal branches of government. You have to believe in the ability of Congress to to enact oversight. Like the if you believe in the institution of American governance – you would say that actually you have to do the exact opposite. You have to be very aggressive about enforcing these standards and doing oversight and checking the power of, of these groups. And like to be like, oh, you know, whatever, like we what, what can we do about the Supreme Court? It's got to take care of itself. That's not an institutionalist mindset to my mind. I think that's actually it actually sort of bespeaks a disbelief in the in the way that this government structure is set up. Uh yeah, no, no, I mean, it's true. We need a different name. It, it is usually called institutionalism, but it's not that. It's a kind of status quo bias or like, a you know, don't yeah. rock the votum, or, you know, it's like right. or inactivism, you know. Um, right. Uh, totally. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah, lovers of Russian yeah. literature, I often uh, would say that the, the Democratic Party is the oblomov of uh political institutions uh uh like the hero of that 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 great novel they kind of like to stay in bed and not do anything <laughs> uh but uh uh and again durbin has a statement which uh you tweeted out which i think is you know uh, similar to the white house statement when he said i hope that the chief justice understands that something must be done the reputation and credibility of the court is at stake so um again the statement is well this is terrible something has to be done uh, John Roberts, will you please save us? It's shocking. And the, and the interesting thing is this comes immediately after Durbin, when the last, you know, when the last ProPublica story was published, uh, obviously there was a huge outcry. It was Durbin needs to bring, Durbin needs to get Clarence Thomas to the Senate to testify about this. Very straightforward, reasonable course of action. Durbin, instead of doing that, refuses to do that. He says, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to ask John Roberts to come instead. And so he puts out a kind request to John Roberts to to come down and uh, you know speak about uh, this <laughs> reputational crisis, basically about the court. Uh, and of course, Roberts says, "No, I'm not going to do that." And so, so then what happens? Then nothing happens, of course. And then we wait another week, and then here again we have another scandal. And and what do we what do we get out of Durbin? It's well, John Roberts really needs to understand that this is not great, and like he needs to talk to his guys and. <laughs> 
you know, they need to get this house in order. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's the, the sequence is so, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's like, of course, Durbin said the reason he didn't invite Clarence Thomas to testify was because he knew he wouldn't come. And like, that was supposed to be some tactical thing where he was like, I'm not going to ask Thomas because I know he's not going to say yes. I'm going to ask John Roberts instead. John Roberts just said no. <laughs> what was the consequence of saying no? Nothing. And then now we get an even softer ask of Roberts, basically like a mean tweet being like, hey, man, like you got to, you know, you got to look into this. Like this is this is not uh, this is not great. Yeah, I think it's, it's generous to say that uh, it's a, even a mean tweet. It's it's more like a, a begging yeah. <laughs> tweet, you know. It's it's, it's a, and then and literally, I mean, like you know, um, I mean, a lot of what Durbin is doing is uh, a rise to the level of like you know, like begging Roberts and and begging the Republicans to um, to like uh, be better. You know, can you please, uh, you know, fix this for us and, and, and not be so, uh, uh, so bad and so corrupt? It's just a, it's a now, and I mean, I mean, on the issue of uh, bringing um, Thomas uh, before the Senate, uh, you know, in theory they could subpoena him. Now they can't right now because um, uh, Diane Feinstein is uh on the house uh, um judiciary on the senate judiciary committee they need her vote and you know she is as everyone knows uh incapacitated and uh by some reports uh you know may never be able to return to washington dc um and uh, within that you know um on the one hand one could say and and, and in that context um the uh, Durbin made another statement where he basically said, you know, he's calling on Republicans to show, quote, kindness, uh, <laughs> end quote, uh, by allowing the Democrats to replace uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein. And of course, the uh, Republicans uh, responded to this very pathetic plea with, I think, the sort of contempt that it deserves. And, you know, like they, they're not going to do it, uh, obviously, because the Republicans are a serious political party that believes in uh, working towards gaining power and, uh, you know, imposing its worldview. Uh, I mean, like, you know, like one could say a lot of things about the Republicans and one could you know, even say that I'm happy to that they're you know, worldview is fundamentally, you know, evil and authoritarian, but but they're actually like working towards, uh, they're functioning as a political party should. Uh, so where's Durbin? I mean, I, I think we have to rope in the this whole issue with the, the Diane Feinstein because I think that yeah. again shows, you know, like, like, you know, their unwillingness to like deal with that issue, uh, which is like, you know, hurting them, like not only with subpoenaing Clarence Thomas, but with actually really like, you know, uh, advancing more, um, uh, federal judges. Uh, 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 I mean, what does that say about about how the Democrats are, you know, waging uh, a political battle? Totally right. It's just like this fundamental. The, 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 what you get with Durbin and with some Senate Democrats across the board is just this willingness to put enacting the agenda on the back burner. It's not even a primary concern. <laughs> Republicans have no issue with this, right? They're like whatever they will pull whatever lever is available to them to enact the agenda. And with Democrats, you don't see that at all. And and Durbin is a real exemplar of this. I mean, there are a couple of things that I think the strongest statement that that we got from him about any of this was he said that there were that all nine justices think they're above above the rules. Well, again, trying to make this seem like it's a bipartisan issue. It's just not even factual. It's just not even, you know, there's just not even any evidence to back up that the the three liberal justices have the same problems and the same uh, contempt for the rules and and for ethics and for disclosure. It's just not true. 
So that's one thing. And, and it does really, really boil down to 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 Feinstein because I mean the right, the 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 sort of pitiful plea to like take pity on 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 Feinstein and let her be replaced. Of course it wasn't gonna work. They did that and then nothing and then nothing and then it failed and then nothing. And so and and when I said you know that Durbin had a very bad two months, I I I mean this because he's getting it from all sides with the blue slips issue. Uh, which is this procedural uh, ploy that Republicans are using to gum up the works even further on judicial nominees. Um, Republicans, I, without getting too in the weeds on this on this stuff, like, you know, this is something, uh, this is a standard Republicans did not hold themselves to when they had control of the Senate. It gives minority party ability to, to gum up uh, the judicial nomination and, and confirmation process. Durbin is willingly allowing Republicans to do this. Democrats are falling just perilously behind in confirming these judges. And he still, he it said two months ago that he was going to look into changing it or like take a hard look at what's happening. Of course, he hasn't done anything. And so you have Republicans are blocking them on all angles. They they can't get their, they can't get Democratic justice or judges confirmed because Feinstein's not there because they won't help, they won't help him out with replacing her. And then they can't get judges who are from Republican states because the Republican senators are blocking those using blue slips. And you know, all the while, you know, Durbin, one of the few things he's done is, is endorse Paul Vallis for mayor of Chicago. That didn't work <laughs> out. Uh, you know, it's like this. When you look at the whole picture of his sort of political agenda and his willingness to act and what he cares about, the portrait is so dismaying. And, and it actually is really interesting and important for Democrats generally because Durbin was in line to replace Harry Reid in 2015. Like this could have been the whole experience for Democrats <laughs> with their control of the Senate and and. And Chuck Schumer leapfrogged him and, and, and you know, ended up obviously being uh, the top dog in the Senate for Democrats. But we could have been talking about this on every level. I mean, this is a theory of governance that exists and had a lot of cachet with Democrats. It's less popular now, but Durbin is an incredibly important role still. It's so frustrating. And I think it's important to realize, like, how much sway he might have had in this party, uh, you know, if, if things had gone a little differently. Yeah, no, no, it's true. Yeah, I mean, what can make a lot of criticisms of Chuck Schumer, but uh, he is at least uh, more aware of the sort of, you know, polarized and partisan nature of politics and, and less kind of beholden to that, you know, mythology of bipartisanship and, you know, Senate collegiality that's, that seems to be, uh, you know, um, ruling uh, Durbin's mind. I mean, it, it really is, um, uh, he, like a lot of other you know, leaders in the Democratic Party are kind of like, you know, really living in the past. They're trying to recreate uh, a past, acting as if, you know, like if we act in a, you know, collegial bipartisan matter, the Republicans will eventually reciprocate and, you know, we'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the 1970s or uh, it's just, uh, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to sort of retroactively try to figure out what what the thinking here here is, <laughs> like, but the, it seems it seems to me like like that's the only thing that can kind of make sense that they're kind of you know trying to model um, um, a way of governing that you know hasn't existed for like you know like several decades now. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, that's just the problem with having a political class that's so old and a leadership <laughs> class, in particular, that's so old. And this is actually a bigger problem for Democrats and Republicans, which have them slightly, you know, especially in the House, are much younger. Republicans have a much younger group uh, that is, especially that is ascendant and is now going to leadership roles. The the notion of how Washington works uh, was informed by a time when things were very different, and I think that's the that's sort of the Durbin conundrum is his understanding of how 
these parties interact, how the Republican Party pursues its agenda, how it, you know, trades off with, with Democrats is just not the political reality that we live in. And it hasn't been that way for a long time. But that's that's how they uh, that's how he understood it as a younger person. That's that's a framework that he has. And, and you know, so his political philosophy, his theory is just, just perilously outmoded. And you see a lot of that in Washington. I think it's why it's so frustrating dealing with some of these uh, with Democrats on some of these things where it's like, what what world are you living in? It just doesn't work like that. And it hasn't worked that for so long. No, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I one thing I take away I want to really leave uh, listeners with is that there's actual like things that could be done, you know, to counter the courts um, that are not being done. I mean, you know, they could move forward with Diane Feinstein uh, resigning and then, you know, being replaced and uh, uh, and that would help them get more judges on and they could they could also you know move forward on getting rid of the um the uh uh blue um cha- uh, chip and uh that would allow them to um also like uh particularly advance uh, the judges that they want uh, in uh, uh red and purple states uh they're not doing that now um and 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 yeah they could uh, you know, if they have like another senator from California uh, in there, uh, move forward with subpoenaing uh, Clarence Thomas. Um, and they could also move forward, I think, on this whole issue of the legitimacy of the courts um, and not say, well, this is a problem, but it's on, you know, John Roberts. Um, uh, and, I, and, and I want to actually circle back to that Alito uh, interview, um, which, uh, you know, like is worth like reading. It's just like sort of frothing mad. Um and Alito's, you know, and this is actually something one's hearing more and more, not just from Alito, but from sort of Federalist Society conservatives, that there's a a plot to delegitimize the courts and that there's a plot to, um, and one would, you know, like as often with right-wing rhetoric, you know, like if only that were so, if only there was actually, you know, but on the one hand, it's true, the courts are being delegitimized, but that's happening like simply because the public is seeing what the courts are doing. They're seeing decisions like Dobbs, uh, decisions like the, you know, recent uh, Texas judge that, you know, uh, wanted to strike down um, uh, access to abortion pills across the country. Uh, and they don't like this stuff. Um, and then they're also seeing, I think, these corruption scandals. And so they're having a, the, the um, uh, approval rating of the Supreme Court is, you know, by polling at a historic low. Uh, you know, we, we don't have polling for all of American history, but like, let's say the last 60, 70 years, we do have polling on. And it's never been as low. And it's, it's gone through like a really rapid decline in the last two years. Uh, and, um, in, and this is, I think, what people like Alito are upset at. They can see that. They can see that, you know, their power is in the courts, but that increasingly a lot of the public doesn't think that what they're doing is legitimate. And what again, one would say, if there was a political party that was serious about power and serious about advancing its agenda, they could look at this legitimacy crisis as an opportunity. They could actually do the things that the Alito is accusing them of, which is like, you know, like making an issue of this and like uh, really running on this and saying like, yes, the courts are illegitimate. This is like, you know, and this is a big problem and we have to you know take radical steps to solve this. Um, but uh, I mean, how do you see this like legitimacy issue playing out? Yeah, it's incredible to me because a lot of these, what well, I guess what we're not calling institutionalist Democrats, these, these, these inactivists or whatever the term that, uh, 
of, of art that we're going to come up with here. Nah, nah, uh, let's, let's call it like a Garfield uh, conservative. Like, sorry, Garfield Democrats. They're like, okay, yeah, I, 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 like I can't stand uh, uh, the Mondays, you know, like, like when will yeah, Friday right, get right, here? Right. And I just want to eat a lasagna. There's a sort of, you know, fat, lazy cat uh, yeah. uh, Democrats. Yeah. Right. The, the, that, that group of politicians, we're seeing them, like their lament is like, oh, the court, like the the legitimacy of the court, is 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 waning. Like the you know the these conservative justices have ruined the reputation of the court, right? And that's their lament, and that's a crazy lament because that doesn't actually make sense as a democratic politician, which is what they what they are, and right? It's like whether or not the court is seen as legitimate, what it's going to do is overturn every act of democratic governance that it can get its hands on. That's what it's going. That's what it's been doing. That's what it's going to do. That's the reality we live in, and so. If you have a, a group like that that is totally beyond the scope of its of its charter, that is widely unpopular and is going to oppose everything you purport to care about, then you would say that this is the perfect time to pick a fight with the court. This is the perfect time to say there has to be reform. This is totally ridiculous. It's, it's gone way too far, and we need to expand the court. We need to set term limits. We have to do some of these procedural reforms that – Without which there actually isn't going to be a democratic governance at all. And and that's both small and capital D democratic governance. It's it's you know, that's this that's the scope of the reality. It's so politically advantageous to Democrats to, to pick this fight right now, and they have to pick it because they can't do student debt cancellation. They can't do they can't do anything. And and it, it's weird to be like, oh, this is, you know, it's so sad the reputation is is diminished. And like <laughs> we need to we need to get John Robertson here so he can. He can really buff up the the reputation and like you know assure us everything's fine. We can get people back on track, loving the Supreme Court. It's like that doesn't actually help them at all. That's the opposite of what they what they should want. And so I actually do think it's a really good question. Is like you know we always talk about Biden the institutionalists. Uh, are Democrats going to be willing to pick this fight? Because it seems like basically any policy debate we might have from here on out is moot until that's dealt with. I mean that's a sort of really a you know bare bones political reality that we're in is like. We, we can't talk about like Medicare for all or like any, any, yeah. anything until you have judicial reform and, and the time it's never been a better time to do it. And it's worked in the past, right? We can look back to uh, Roosevelt picking a fight with the courts in, in the new deal era. We have all this love for Roosevelt in the white house right now, but you got to, you just have to do it. And yeah. I don't know. I will see. I, yeah. I, I think it's genuinely up in the air. I, I, I don't think it's for sure that they will shy away from it. And it's crazy because forever I would have thought that's the case. I don't think it's for sure that they're going to pick this fight, but I think that it's something that's being talked about, which is really interesting. Yeah, no, it is being talked about. Yeah. And I actually, to your Roosevelt example, the earlier example uh, is also Abraham Lincoln and the sort of, you know, Republicans and abolitionists uh, in the Civil War era, because the, the courts were the great enemy, uh, uh, you know, like um, not just of sort of like uh, abolitionism, but like, you know, in Dred Scott, like the, the very idea of uh, African-Americans being citizens. Um, the... Uh, uh, and then and, and Lincoln very much did say, you know, like that if, if the courts can make these decisions, that means we don't have self-governance. And that is the kind of existential crisis you have when the courts, you know, take on this kind of role. Um, and it is a, the crisis um, the, the, that, as you say, like there's a whole host of issues on which the Democrats uh, agenda can't move forward. I would add also environmentalism and sort of like any sort of regulations, because it looks like they might, um, uh, you know, roll back some of the sort of, you know, um, Chevron deference uh, that um, 
uh, has existed um, since the 80s. Uh, so, yeah, I just... Um, the it, whole administrative state, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, mean, that, that, I mean, yeah, if you look at the more radical Clarence Thomas end of things, I mean, the, the end goal is a kind of, you know, um, uh, dismantling of the administrative state. It's sort of based on this theory that the um, American Constitution has been in exile, you know, not just since the New Deal, but since Woodrow Wilson, and that one has to return, you know, to the glory days of of the robber barons. Uh, which I mean, I guess I mean in some ways, uh, you know, like uh, Harlan Crow's relationship with Clarence Thomas is exactly like the uh, uh, that uh, pre. Uh, um, uh, uh, progressive era where uh, you know, like you did have billionaires that just owned public servants outright. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. so, 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 I mean, that is the, I mean, that, that is the goal. Uh, and I, one, one sees like politically, there are more and more sort of you know democratic activists and and some people in you know, um, uh, the Congress like um, um, uh, AOC and even you know some in the Senate like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that are you know like uh, you know edging towards this position whether it becomes the you know like mainstream democratic position that then Biden takes up yeah I think that is an open question and I think I think that's a very important question right right and the other question is just a, it, it's a matter of time right it's like yeah. that's the other issue is it it does feel like these things are inching along uh, and then the, the big, the big, you know, X factor is urgency. And if you look at like, I mean, if you look at the Senate map in 2024, uh, it's almost hard to think like the fact that someone like Durbin, Dick Durbin could feel no sense of urgency looking at that Senate map is shocking to me because it's not like they've got years to figure this out. They have months to figure this out. Like it's the yeah. window. This is, is, is very, very small. And so, um, yeah, right. Will they figure it out? Maybe will they figure it out too late? That's another question. It does feel like uh, if something is happening, but is it enough? And is it is it quick enough? I I I don't know. Well, I guess yeah. that's that's all the intrigue lies. That's right. That's right. I think that's a good question to kind of like end it on. I mean that that is, uh, I think where things uh, stand. Uh, so once again, thanks to uh, Alex Salmon from uh, Slate. Uh, uh, you can read his writing there. Uh, he uh, writes about national politics in general. Very much worth reading. And uh, uh, once again, it's it great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.